Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show where you will learn how to understand and activate your subconscious mind. My first guest is Dr. Mike Dow. He's a psychotherapist, best-selling author, and brain health expert. Dr. Mike holds a Master of Science degree in marriage, in family therapy, and a doctorate in psychology. And he's written a book, a pretty cool book. It's entitled, Your Subconscious Brain Can Change Your Life, Overcome Obstacles, Heal Your Body, and Reach Any Goal with a Revolutionary Technique. Dr. Mike, I can't wait to get into the revolutionary technique, but I want to just welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. The pleasure is all mine. Well, let, let's just jump right into this because any technique that we can give people, any tool that we can share to help folks enhance their well-being is a number one priority on my list. But before we get into SVT or subconscious visual training technique, I want to ask you to define the differences between the unconscious and the conscious brain and what these terms actually mean. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I have a little diagram in my book of an iceberg. And, you know, so the conscious is that part of the brain uh, that is above the water, the parts that you see. And then the subconscious is that part uh, below the water. And then you're also going to see something really cool in my book as soon as you open the cover. And remember that old commercial, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs? Yes. Well, uh, you're going to see my brain in a room doing nothing. And you're going to see my brain on SVT. So my brain, when I activated my own subconscious via, you know, hypnosis and all of the other things that I put into this uh, little tool that I use. And you can kind of see my brain waves. So um, essentially, that iceberg is taking us from these conscious brain waves, which are gamma, beta, alpha, down into the dreamy theta brain wave, which allows us to do all sorts of things. And, you know, Lisa, the, the example that I always give people is, you know, your subconscious is already working for you. So if you've ever had that experience of, you know, you're at a party and you're like, oh my gosh, I think I know you. How do I know you? And you consciously search your memory and you can't find the association or where you met that person. And then you give up. And then hours later, you know, you're like, you're going about your day or your evening. And then it just, bam, it just comes to you. Well, that was your subconscious working to try to find what you were looking for. And you weren't even aware that your subconscious has been working for you for hours, right? So, uh, so instead of being unaware of our subconscious working, you know, what this book is doing is teaching us how to use the subconscious in an intentional way. 
I really like what you just said, because I am one of those, I call them like the Rolodex data retrieval. You know, it's like, I'll get a hint of something, a subtle hint of knowing someone or a piece of information. And as we age, it doesn't come back to us as quickly as it once did. And I like when I get that little kernel of popcorn that pops and I'm able to make that connection, it's brilliant. And and I get what you're saying, that it is the subconscious that is doing the work. It's percolating underneath the surface. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, what's really cool about those brain scans is, you know, a lot of people, when they hear the word subconscious or hypnosis, um, there's a lot of hypnosis, a lot of hypnotic techniques in my tool that people will learn how to use in the book. But what's cool is you see my EEG, you see my spec scan of my own brain, which shows changes in blood flow and activity in the brain uh, that my buddy, uh, Dr. Daniel Amen did for me. Um, you know, so I, I think it takes some Lucky of the, you. I know, I know. <laughs> But, you know, it takes some of the mystery away. I think a lot of people, when they think of the subconscious, they think of Las Vegas, they think of barking like a dog, being embarrassed or brainwashing or that I'm going to do something weird and woo woo, uh, when really a lot of the effects are really scientific. And, you know, I cite a lot of mainstream published medical journals, you know, looking at the way that, for example, with a condition like, let's say, irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, that hypnosis is more effective than prescription medication in all of these studies. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting that, yes, your subconscious brain really can, in many ways, change your life. And, and the subconscious brain is, it, it, it's, tell us how it works in terms of activating both sides of the brain. Like we always hear about, oh, like we're working from one side of the brain. Ideally, we're, we're firing on both sides and being synergistic. And how does it relate to the unconscious and the conscious mind working together versus yeah, separately? That's a really great question. So you're going to see in my spec scan that the subconscious tends to activate and deactivate certain brain structures. Now, we know from EEG studies that hypnosis and the subconscious tends to activate the right hemisphere of the brain. But what's really cool about my technique is it's really the, the first tool um, that's ever been created that integrates bilateral stimulation with hypnosis. So um, there are certain points of the technique where you're going to hear alternating left and right tones in your ear while you're visualizing something that happened to you or something that, you know, just different things that you can visualize. And you, and you may be thinking, now, why the heck would I be hearing left and right tones? Well, when you hear tones in your left and right ears, that helps to activate the left and right hemispheres of your brain. So it's really helping you to use both left and right um, hemispheres. So it's often been said that when you use the left hemisphere, you can really make rational sense of your experience. And when you're using the right hemisphere, you can sort of paint in the language of the subconscious, which is really important when you're trying to be creative or when you're trying to get rid of something because the subconscious doesn't talk and store in words. It, it really talks and speaks and stores in images and sense memory. So you have to speak directly to the subconscious in those ways. But then you also have to bring the left hemisphere online to, to really make rational sense of your experience. So, you know, I think the tools in this really help people to be um, integrated, balanced, so that they can really use both 
left and right hemispheres, which are sort of correlated loosely with the conscious and the subconscious to really bring all of your cylinders online, so to speak. And it's applications as I see it. I mean, there's the obvious, which is healing memory and trauma and, and that sort of thing. But I would think that the application also works in the reverse in terms of, let's say you want to trained for uh, better prowess in one area of your life, whether it's, it's, it's your studies or athleticism, that you could use it for that application as well? Absolutely. You know, we know that the theta brainwave, which is the brainwave of the subconscious, it works really well um, to press uh, when you want to press the delete button. So let's say, you know, prowess, let's say you want to really achieve something. Maybe it's athletic, maybe it's business success, maybe it's financial success. So then we would go back and we would delete any naysaying voice, any sort of uh, limiting belief, any sort of negative self-talk. And maybe that self-talk was learned because of things that you went through. We've all had childhood childhood experiences or um, negative, uh, maybe there was a failed business last year, you know, and that negative experience can affect us. Wouldn't it be so nice to delete that? And then, you know, the theta brainwave also works better in pressing the re-record. So now we can go back and we can uh, delete the negative. And over that, we can sort of re-record optimistic beliefs and positivity. And sort of we can then install and rewire, reprogram positive self-talk, optimism, uh, which can then also help us to see the future. We also know that the theta brainwave helps us to experience things in a way that feels real. So in a way, you're tricking the brain into thinking it is seeing and experiencing anything that you can paint a picture of in your mind's eye, um, which then is telling the brain, oh, I can do that, right? There was this MRI study with hypnosis that burned people <laughs> with something in their hand, like for real, and, and then had them imagine it and then used hypnosis and then had them imagine it again. And they looked at their brain and they found that when you were just imagining this thing in your hand, it didn't really light up the brain. But when you used hypnosis and they looked at the MRI, it was as if they were actually getting burned again. So in a lot of ways, you can actually use that Jedi mind trick to trick the brain into thinking it's experiencing anything that you can paint with your mind's eye, which is a, a really great trick. And also the basis of like performance psychology, right? For when we train athletes, we're using this type of, of practice to help them envision getting that faster time or that, that, that a higher level of achievement. Absolutely. You know, uh, what, when you watch the Olympics, what diver, you know, when you watch them before they climb up that uh, tall diving board, which one doesn't practice something deep in their mind's eye, right? You know, and then, you know, there's all these other great examples of, um, you know, one of the founders of modern medical hypnosis, you know, he was uh, actually partially paralyzed from a really bad case of polio. And he would sort of to teach himself to walk again, he would put himself into these states and he would sort of um, in these hypnotic states, visualize himself walking again, visualize himself re wiring his brain and body to walk, which allowed him to walk again. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you are an athlete, uh, a performer, um, a stroke survivor needing to uh, recover, uh, doing things in this power of cognitive rehearsal, um, seeing what you could achieve in your mind's eye is really a, an incredible skill. 
I love what that, that phrase, cognitive rehearsal. So it's like the thought experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I like to say, you know, when people say, well, what's the difference? I always say that, you know, when you use the subconscious, it's sort of um, like virtual reality. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's sort of like uh, it's cognitive rehearsal on steroids is what it is, using the virtual reality of your mind's eye. So it makes it more potent and more powerful. We're going to take a break in a minute. And before we go, I want to just mention one thing about sort of ancient practices and technologies that um, make me believe that SVT, subconscious visual training technique, has its roots, cog cognitively or not. When you think about ancient meditation practices or sound bath, you know, tone therapy that uses different levels of tone to activate, you know, different parts of the brain. In essence, these ancient traditions had a knowledge of this before medical science ever caught up. Yeah, I think so. We know that 4-4 four, four is the rhythm of theta. Um, so any music, you know, when you look at these ancient practices, if you look at, um, for example, um, swaying incense, you know, we know that anything that sways and sort of captures your attention with slow 4-4 four, four rhythm music is going to put you into a trance. So we think that there have been a lot of ancient religious traditions, which is why some people now, you know, still have this association of, you know, anything with the subconscious has to be religious, which it doesn't. Um, it, it, we think that it really put people in trance. And there's even, you know, thousands of years ago, um, this, uh, I, I believe it was the Egyptians and sleep temples. Um, we believe that people were putting themselves into trance for the, the healing capabilities that it had. So this is not um, something that's brand new. This is something that's probably been going on for thousands of years. And is now able to be qualified, quantified, measured and proven. Yeah. And it's really having a renaissance, you know, hypnotism and hypnosis in the medical community was really big in the sixties and seventies. Then it died off. And then because of all of these brain scan studies and, you know, my brain scans, you know, I'm really the first person to do both a SPECT and an EEG to really show the effects. There've been a lot of recent MRI studies. The New York times has, you know, in the recent, in the past five years has been doing a lot of Articles on the power of hypnosis um, in relieving chronic pain, um, cancer treatment. MD Anderson is now using hypnosis for cancer. And it's just it, it, so it's having this renaissance because we're realizing just how powerful it truly is. Let's take the break. We'll come back. We'll continue the conversation with Dr. Mike Dow. The book we're talking about today is Your Subconscious Brain Can Change Your Life, Overcome Obstacles, Heal Your Body, and Reach Any Goal with a Revolutionary Technique. We're going to learn about that technique when we get back. To learn more, please visit DrMikeDow.com on Twitter at DrMikeDow and on Facebook and Instagram. We've got those same pages, Dr. Mike Dow. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we are back. I'm talking with my guest, Dr. Mike Dow. We're speaking about understanding and activating your subconscious mind. Let's return to the conversation. So, Mike, bring it on. Bring on the revolutionary technique. I am ready to learn how to do SVT. 
Yeah, so I love this technique. So SVT, subconscious visualization technique, is the first technique that integrates cognitive behavioral tools with hypnosis and also bilateral stimulation and visualization. So uh, let me just break that down. So SVT is a seven-step process, and we start step one with looking at pitfall thought patterns that are associated with CBT. So looking at how personalization, polarized thinking, uh, pessimistic thinking, so consciously identifying these thought patterns and, and the way that they hold you back. Then in steps two through seven, now we're starting to access the subconscious. So you can kind of see how my technique, instead of like most other techniques, sort of just choosing one or the other, this is a technique that really integrates both cognitive behavioral tools with hypnotic tools, with subconscious-based tools. So then in step two, you're going to activate the subconscious brain. Um, if you'd like, we can demonstrate that a little bit right now. I can do a little mini practice if your listeners want to experience what that feels like. Don't you know it? <laughs> um, let's, so let's do it right now. Um, so this is just a, a tiny, like a, a mini version. So all you'd have to do is just sort of become mindful of, let's say your breath, and then just become mindful of the sounds that you're hearing. And then become mindful of one sight that you can see right in front of you. And then on the next inhale, roll the eyeballs up and then see one color there near the ceiling, there, up, and then hold the breath, hold, hold, hold. There you go. And then on the next exhale, there, allow the eyeballs to flow down, down, down. And then when you're ready to relax, just allow the eyelids to close. There you go. And then imagine that you're riding the elevator down 12 floors, 12, 11, 10, deeply, deeply relaxed, 9, 8, 7, deeply, deeply calm, 7, 6, 5, 4, deeply, deeply free, 3, 2, 1, deeply deeply carefree. And here you can imagine yourself stepping out of that elevator and taking yourself into a memory, a memory where you feel so happy, so peaceful. And I don't know if it's a memory that you've already been to, a place in your past. And these theta brainwaves of the subconscious allow you to access memories in a way that feels visceral. And you can see and hear where you were when you were feeling so happy and free. And if you'd like, you can actually turn up that happy, peaceful, carefree feeling as much as you can stand it if you dare. And know that here and now that you have the ability to access this feeling, not by creating an external change, but by internally accessing this feeling of happiness, of calm. Isn't that so nice to know? Yes, that's right. These feelings are already inside you. So now that you've gotten just a taste of what this experience is like, let's take you back up that elevator now, seeing it in your mind's eye, and you're going to become twice as awake and alert, and you are going to awaken feeling just so fabulous and free, better than you were just a moment or two ago. Now seeing that elevator boarding it now, one, two, three, feeling a more awake and alert, four, five, six, feeling a little bit more energized and awake, seven, eight, nine, feeling so fabulous and free, 10, 11, eyes open, 12, feeling just a little bit better more calm, awake, and alert than you were just moments ago. 
feel anything, Lisa? <laughs> I do. That was fabulous. I, and and it makes me think you can use it for almost anything, right? So you can use it for healing of difficult material. You can use it for helping to plant seeds for performance. You can use it even for basic stress release, which is really what your little mini sesh did, right? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously that was, you know, a few minute practice. You know, my practices are in the book and the audio tracks that come with the book are, you know, 30, 40 minutes. And you can see once you activate it, you know, steps, uh, steps three, four, five, six, seven, I take you back into your past. And then I have you optimize the present with visualizations, which are targeted for you your goal. And then I have you move to the future. And then the coolest part is because we know from research that when you have activated the subconscious deeply, that you are very suggestible. So of course, I'm going to deepen you again, and then I'm going to plant positivity. So you're going to hear affirmations, you're going to hear this really positive self talk based on whatever the goal is, you know, every chapter is about, you know, there's a chapter for healing the body, there's a chapter for phobias and fears, there's a chapter for, um, you know, there's a little mini practice for insomnia for success. So you're going to hear these things and then I bring you out. Um, so you can see how you, yes, you really can use this for just about anything. And that was my next question was um, sleep hygiene and sleep issues, because that's something that most people can relate to. Not everybody's had some of these other uh, conditions, but we can all relate to sleepless nights or if we have chronic sleeplessness. And I can see how this would work. Oh, it's just amazing for sleep and not just initiating sleep. You know, one of the, uh, I have to talk about just how magical SVT is for sleep because we know from research that, you know, deep, that, that slow wave sleep tends to decrease as we age. And we know that that type of sleep is really uh, important for health. Um, we know that this technique, my technique and hypnosis in general can actually increase that with suggestions. We also know that, you know, I think that, that this research has just come out and it's really exciting the past couple of years that the theta brainwave. So, you know, when you fall asleep, you're passing from beta to alpha through theta down into dreamless delta. But then as the night goes on, you pop back up into theta several times. And that's when you dream. And that's when you have that rapid eye movement. Um, and that happens mostly at the end of the night, right? We know that that theta brainwave is, is really important when you're dreaming because your brain is making sense of what happened to you during the day. It's chewing on things. It's chewing on memories. And it's either spitting them out. It's swallowing the memories. It's converting memories, um, it, some of the things it can store, um, if it needs to really chew on something so it can make sense of it and spit it out. Um, and people who can chew on something and spit it out are people who can uh, be less likely to be diagnosed with uh, anxiety disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder. And Lisa, here's the really fascinating part. When you dream, you don't have control or much control over what you're going to chew on and spit out, do you? And if you're not dreaming, I'm sorry, if you're not sleeping eight hours, <laughs> ch chances are you're not dreaming. Because remember, most of your dreaming comes at the end of your sleep cycle. So hours six, seven, eight. So here's the cool thing. SV SVT is actually induced dreaming. It's the same theta brainwave. And you can use it to sort of um, make sense of what happened, uh, during the day, uh, which I think is just really cool. Well, it's a, it's a restorative process, right? It's a, it's a streamlined restorative process. At least that's what I hear you describing. 
Yeah, it is. And for people who genetically, you know, we know that, you know, there's a, a portion of people who, you know, looking at veterans who come back, you know, there's a subset of them who are more likely to be diagnosed with uh, PTSD. And it, no surprise in research, it's, it's, the, it's veterans who have less theta brainwaves. Isn't that interesting? So when you have faster brainwaves, you're more likely to be diagnosed with PTSD. So if you can actually learn to generate the slower theta brainwaves um, and then actually teach yourself to make sense of what happened to you and to discharge the negatively charged emotion, which is the hippocampus and the amygdala, two parts of your brain, the hippocampus, more memory, the amygdala, more emotion. If you can use these two parts of the brain, which my technique does to sort of uh, make sense of it, to sort of chew out and spit out that negative thing that happened to you today or last week or last month, um, then you can actually move on with more grace. Uh, this makes really good sense. And it's almost like a little bit of brain mechanics, right? That um, in a post-traumatic stress response, the amygdala, the hippocampus, they become overstimulated and the brain sort of locks in position, right? It's locked and loaded in this hypervigilant state. And what I, what I'm hearing you describe is that this process, the SVT process slows that down and disables it. Yeah, that's right. SVT is great for anybody with an overactive amygdala. It disables that part of the brain. It takes, you know, anybody who has that amygdala that's like the smoke detector that is just too sensitive that goes off every time you put a piece of bread in the toaster. <laughs> really, it turns it down, right? Which is really, really important for people who are, who, who have that part of the brain that is just way, way too sensitive. Um, and, you know, if, if you are that person, you know what I'm talking about and you know what that feels like and how d uncomfortable that can be. So to know that there is a tool that you can actually go into that part of the brain, by the way, the, the theta brainwave of SVT is the dominant brainwave of the amygdala. So it makes sense that this is a technique that goes right in there and fixes it really quickly as opposed to conscious techniques, which it will fix it, but it takes a lot longer, right? When we look at, you know, for example, for PTSD, these old exposure therapies, I mean, veterans had to come in and talk about their experience. Ugh. 30, awful. Horrible. 60 <laughs> sessions. Who wants to do that? Right. It's like, no, I have to tell this story for the 50th time about, you know, seeing my best friend killed. No, I don't want to do that. That's it, it's traumatizing for me uh, with these techniques. First of all, you don't even have to talk, which, you know, for some people is nice because they don't want to talk about it again. Um, you just go into your mind's eye. And, you know, really rapidly, you know, I treated somebody who was a survivor of abuse, some really horrific childhood abuse. Um, and in one to two sessions, he said, yeah, I mean, he just couldn't believe it. He said, you know, the, the left side of the brain still has uh, an account of what happened. So it's not like you're not going to have total amnesia, but the emotional charge of the memory has been replaced, which is the distressing part, right? I mean, that's why pe survivors have these sense memories. You know, it's the, they wake up with nightmares, they smell something and that triggers them. So a lot of them are, they're on the right side of the brain, right? It's not so much the, the, fa the fact that you know you're a survivor, it's what that means to you and, and the, the emotions that are associated with that. So we were able to sort of delete and replace the 
visual, emotional memories with some really pleasant memories. And he just couldn't believe the difference in one to two sessions. And it was really a life changer for him. Well, to uh, I just want, we're, we're out of time. So I want to invite listeners to um, buy your book, Your Subconscious Brain Can Change Your Life, Overcome Obstacles, Heal Your Body and Reach Any Goal with a Revolutionary Technique, which will also offer readers a glimpse into Dr. Mike Dow's brain. You will see it there. <laughs> <laughs> in, the open, in the opening pages of the book um, and explore SVT, subconscious visualization technique. I think this is really cool. I'm going to use it on myself and I'm going to finish reading the book and introduce some clients to this because I see the value of this, this synthesizing process, right? Of firing both sides of the brain and using it for performance. I mean, that's where I see it as well as for healing of memories. Yeah, Absolutely. To learn more, please visit drmikedow.com on Twitter at drmikedow and on Facebook, Dr. Mike Dow. And guess what? Instagram is also Dr. Mike Dow. Dr. Mike Dow, thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure's all mine. We're going to take that break and we will be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. We're continuing the conversation about understanding and activating your subconscious mind. My next guest is Mark Gober. He's the author of An End to Upside Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, it is a pleasure to just jump into this subject matter because most of us here are not scientists. We, we sometimes play them, but <laughs> let's, mm -hmm. let, let's talk about what motivated you to write this book because you've got an interesting story. My background is in business. I'm a partner at a firm in Silicon Valley called Sherpa Technology Group, and we advise businesses on their technology and their intellectual property. Prior to that, I worked in investment banking with UBS in New York. So my background is, is not in the scientific realm per se, but I became very interested in scientific topics in 2016. And I, I was listening to podcasts, not intending to learn about the topic of consciousness, but I heard some, a uh, few interviews that really piqued my interest. And long story short is that I ended up researching extensively where if I wasn't in the office for work, all I wanted to do was research this topic of consciousness because I was just so passionate about it. And I did that for a year and then I decided to write a book. Boom, there it is. But we need to add that you have a degree in psychology with a focus in behavioral economics. So it's not completely out of left field. That's true. And when I was an undergrad at Princeton, I was thinking about majoring in astrophysics because I had taken a few courses in that area and I was just interested in the universe and what we're doing here. So I think I've had the interest. I just haven't uh, pursued it beyond college. So when we talk about the universe, and what are we doing here? It's something I think about all the time still, and I think I've maybe gotten a bit closer, uh, but I still have more questions the more I, I learn. And I think 
where all, it all comes back to a top, the topic of consciousness. And when I say consciousness, I mean the awareness that you and I have right now, all of your listeners have this, this subjective inner experience that we all call consciousness. It's like it's not a physical thing, but it's there. And when we examine consciousness from a scientific perspective, what we learn is that, first of all, there are big open questions in science about it. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't know in science how, how the brain, which is the physical thing in our skull, how that produces consciousness. It's actually the number two question that remains in all of science. So here we are, we have, we have this mind, we have this awareness, it's indisputable, and yet we don't know still scientifically how a brain could produce it. And what I spend most of my book doing is is suggesting that the consciousness that we all experience exists, but it's not from the body. And that the brain is more like a little antenna that is picking up a consciousness that isn't produced by us. So it really shifts our perspective of our own identity and how we fit in the universe. So the consciousness comes from out there or the energy that is created by all of us with our little antennas sticking up? The way I think about it is to so the conventional view in science today, and this is why I felt so compelled to write the book, says that the brain creates consciousness, or more generally, the brain, which is made up of matter, like atoms, physical stuff, matter creates consciousness. And my, my book is devoted to showing that that assumption is not correct, and that it's actually the reverse, that consciousness is more fundamental than matter. Wow. So our body is sort of like a a filtering mechanism where consciousness exists as the basis of all of reality. And we get to see a limited sliver of it through our brain and our body. So is consciousness infinite? I would argue, I think it is based on what I've seen. So that's, it's sort of like the infinite basis of reality is this consciousness. And we as humans sort of step in and out of it. I would say that we're always in it. It's just the degree to which we are in it. And the brain acting like an antenna, or I think more precisely like a filter, it suggests that there is some much broader reality out there. Like if you think of consciousness as being the sun, and our brain and our thoughts and our emotions, they're like clouds. When we quiet our minds, or when we get our brain in a certain state, we allow in more rays or, le or fewer rays of that sun of consciousness. So... To tap into this consciousness or strengthen our experience of consciousness, what do we do? The emerging research on this topic, because it is, it is pretty cutting edge, suggests that exercises where we can quiet the mind allow us to receive better, receive information. So that could be practices like meditation or sensory deprivation or yoga, anything to quiet the mind and kind of remove some of those clouds that can block intuition, consciousness, whatever you want to call it. And when we look at today's society being so busy and easily distracted by digital devices, by the 24-hour news cycle, by the demands of our day, the challenge becomes overriding that to find that quiet space. Yes, it takes real conscious intention to kind of stop the programming that's so easy to fall into in society and say, wait a second, I'm, I'm creating lots of clouds in my mind. Why don't I try to just quiet the mind and remove some of those clouds and see what kinds, what kinds of 
thoughts or feelings or intuitions come in. And what's interesting about what you just shared is if you look um, to yogic practices, right? So yoga being thousands of years old, they had the technology, right? The ancients had the technology, didn't really know, right? I mean, they didn't have the research methodologies to verify the why, but they understood it. It is amazing. I, that's one of the things that really shocked me in my research is that the new science is converging on what people have been saying for thousands of years. And it seems like the, the yogic practices and, and traditions like it, those individuals seem to understand the nature of reality through direct experience. So through transcendent states of consciousness that were achieved through long-term meditation or things like that, there seems to be this broader reality that can be accessed. It's been accessed throughout time. And now we're, we're learning of science that is explaining it. And when you talk about direct experience, the, the, the knowing comes from the experience, not the thought or the feeling. Yes. And typically it is described as something that is ineffable, meaning it's difficult to use language to describe. And this is also what happens in the near-death experience, which is kind of a similar direct experience of consciousness where the people come back after they have been resuscitated and they say, I can't really use language to explain what happened. So unless you've also had that direct experience, it's difficult for us to communicate it to each other. This is fascinating. In the book, did you research near-death experiences? Yes, there's a whole chapter on near-death experiences. And just for your listeners' benefit, the way the book is structured is showing independent areas of science that suggest that consciousness is not localized, not produced by the body. And the near-death experience is an example of that because in the near-death experience, a person is having a lucid memory and logical thought processes during a time that we would not expect because their brain is either off or it's barely functional, and yet the person's having a totally clear memory. This is pretty cool. Mark, tell us a little bit more about some of the chapters within an end to upside down thinking. There are two categories of phenomena that I examine. One is various psychic phenomena, and the other is the notion that consciousness survives when the body dies. So both of those things would be predicted if consciousness doesn't come from the body. Those things are actually not strange anomalies if we shift our view on consciousness. So I'll give an example of psychic phenomena that I cover. One is called remote viewing, which is the ability to perceive something even though you're not there physically. It's like you're seeing it with your mind. And I was fascinated to learn that the U.S. government ran a program for more than 20 years where they used remote viewers as psychic spies. Yep. And they there have been uh, CIA documents declassified recently, which suggest that this was real and this was actually used for national security. And not only the U.S. government, but the Chinese government and the Russian government, that there were these psychic wars going on at a time in our history. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. And that I think is part of the U.S.'s interest in it was that uh, they felt that other governments were using uh, psychics for national security. So, for example, during the Cold War, it made sense to try it as well. I think there was a book that came out, was it a year or two ago, uh, called Phenomena? that talks yes. a lot. It was a great read. Yes. Did you I, read it? That's one, I, I've read parts of it and I cite it in my book yeah. because it gets into this topic. And um, interestingly, for my own podcast, which hasn't been released yet, I, I, I recently interviewed Russell Targ, who was one of the laser physicists at Stanford who ran the U.S. government program on remote viewing. 
And when, when I talk to people who have been around this topic or have researched it extensively, for them, it's no question as to whether it's real because they saw it in action all the time. Uh, well, lucky you that you got to interview him. Yeah, it was a very interesting interview. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your podcast because it, it hasn't dropped yet. It's coming and you have built up a fabulous reservoir of amazing interviews. And I'd love for you to share uh, the name of the podcast and kind of your angle. Well, as of now, the name has not been determined, but my angle is to cover the topics that I cover in my book. But instead of reading my quotes from various scientists. The podcast is a way for people to hear from the scientists and the practitioners themselves. So I interview people like Russell Targ, who ran the remote viewing program, but I also move into things like near-death experiences. So former Harvard neurosurgeon Eben Alexander is someone that I interviewed. Um, Daniel Brinkley, who's had four near-death experiences now, I interviewed him to talk about what he experienced. So it's, it's really, I'm hoping, another way for people who are interested in these topics to learn directly from those who are experts. And we've had both of them on the show. That's great. Which is they're, they're wonderful. They are really wonderful, really, really uh, generous with their time and in sharing their experiences. We're going to take a break in a couple of minutes. But before we do, I kind of want to step into another part of this uh, consciousness territory. And that is the connection of consciousness and spirituality and what the scientific community is learning. Perfect. Well, it depends on which scientists you ask, and this is one of the topics I discover I discovered when I researched and I talk about in the book, which is that many scientists are very resistant to the ideas that we're speaking of today, and there's this bias to say no consciousness must come from the brain. But on the other side, there are many scientists that are opening up because of the overwhelming evidence. And as you're alluding to, the the science is pointing towards many ideas that have traditionally been called spiritual. And it seems like the reality that we're in is one that is beyond what our physical eyes can see. We're going to take that break now. To learn more about the work of Mark Gober, please go to markgober.com. On Twitter, you could find him at Mark Gober Author. And on Facebook, that page is Mark Gober Author. The book we're talking about is An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Hanging out with Mark Gober, we're talking about understanding and activating your subconscious mind. So Mark, prior to the break, we were talking a little bit about 
what some of the research is showing now or what some of the scientists are led to believe by what they are discovering that spirituality does have a place within science or vice versa yeah i think it's 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 kind of becoming one of these undeniable things that when we look at the science we are seeing phenomena that are typically called spiritual and the near death experience going back to that term is is one that i think is a great example where a person who has a, a brain that is basically turned off is having an experience where they are seeing mystical beings. They're talking about having a life review where they're observing how they acted towards people during their life. They talk about being inundated with unconditional love and peace. And it starts getting into topics like return into the body. So these are all topics that have been discussed in spiritual circles for many years. And now, when we look at the science and we look at certain scientific phenomena, they are crossing over into the spiritual realm. So when we look at um, scientific phenomena and psychic phenomenon, you talk about in the book the physical signs that the body displays. There's a phenomenon that I discuss in the book. One of them is called precognition, which is the ability to know or sense the future before it happens. And if it doesn't make any sense by conventional science because conventional science thinks of time as going from the past to the present to the future. And with precognition, it's as if the future is affecting the past. And there are studies that actually show that the body is responding to the future very subtly before anyone knows what the future is. And the classic study uses a computer, and I've actually done this myself at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California, where you're looking at a screen and the screen starts to show you different images randomly. So one image might be a very peaceful landscape like a mountain or a river, and another one might be a violent image or an erotic image, something that we know would stimulate the body even at a subconscious level. We know in conventional psychology that if you show someone an arousing picture, their skin will very subtly react beyond the person's awareness. And sometimes the pupils will dilate or the brain will respond or the heart will respond. What's interesting is that in these studies, those same reactions of the body happen, but it's before the picture is even shown by the computer. And nobody knows what will be shown because it's randomly generated. So the experimenter isn't even sure which picture will come up next. And yet when we look at the statistics, it's a very subtle effect. The body does seem to be responding before anybody knows what picture will be shown by the computer. So the precognition or the pre-sensing, is it coming from, it's not coming from the brain. Is it coming from the heart? Is it coming from the gut? Is it coming from, where is it coming from? This is still a big open question. So the idea is that consciousness is somehow existing beyond all space and time in an infinite manner, as you described before. And in these cases, it's like consciousness is reaching forward into the future, into a very uh, highly probable future, and the body is picking it up somehow. And how the body's picking that up, I don't think we understand. This is pretty amazing stuff. I mean, have you uh, interviewed the folks from HeartMath? I have not interviewed them yet, but I'm very familiar with their work. Yeah. And what the study that I referenced on how the heart responds before the picture comes up, that's from HeartMath. Yeah. I mean, I mean, HeartMath has, has some amazing experiments. I'm thinking of the um, one in the film by Tom Shadiak, I Am. He is connected to the yogurt, but not connected to the yogurt. <laughs> have you, <laughs> se have you seen no, that? I have not. 
Ah, well, imagine that, you know, you, it's proving that we're connected to all things, right? This is what the experiment attempts to explore. And so Tom Shadiak, who is the, the, the producer of Liar Liar and all of the, um, Jim Carrey films, he is connected to this machine that is sensing his, uh, energy. And he has electrodes and the electrodes are connected to a petri dish of yogurt. And as he talks about things that are of a charge to him, that the yogurt is activated. Yeah, I have heard of studies like this. And there was a man named Cleve Baxter, who was the head of lie detection at the CIA or some role like that. And he ran some studies similar to what you just described that I think when I've talked, spoken to scientists about it, they all say that it needs more replication, but the effect has been shown by certain people. And, you know, what is that all about? I mean, I mean, for the, for the lay person, to me, that is illustrative of the connectivity of all things. Uh, to me, it, it makes sense because there's so many other examples like it. And to use a, a term from quantum physics called entanglements, it's this notion that you can have two particles that are physically separate from each other. You can see one here and you can see one far away. When you affect one of them, the other one at the same exact instant, no time has lapsed, has the same kind of effect. It's a mirroring. So Dean Radin, who's a scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, wrote a book called Entangled Minds, which brings this all together. It ties together this effect in quantum physics with the notion that our minds, our consciousness, has the same entanglement. Well, and didn't Einstein call that spooky action at a distance? He did, and he tried to disprove it because it violated the idea that the speed of light was the fastest that anything could travel. And here we have two things that are distant, and there's no time that has lapsed. Yep, it's that's pretty wild stuff. Let's talk about terminal lucidity because this is something that I mean I understand what each of those words mean, <laughs> but when putting them together, what do you what does it mean? Terminal lucidity is, is one of the examples I show in the book, which challenges this conventional view in science that the brain is what produces consciousness. In cases of terminal lucidity, a person who has had some kind of a brain trauma or brain illness, like Alzheimer's disease, they haven't had a functioning memory for a long time, and yet soon before they are about to die, they kind of snap into being lucid, and it's like nothing ever happened. And they're totally, when they're speaking as if they had no illness, their memory comes back, and then shortly thereafter they die. And this has been reported by many people who are, who are doing uh, forms of care uh, for people around the time of death, and it's reported very often. The University of Virginia has looked at this, and it's, it's a phenomenon that's not well understood, again, by the conventional view, because here we have a brain that's damaged and a period of, of lucidity where the person is functioning normally. That shouldn't be happening under the conventional view of the brain. So there are hypotheses about why this happens. It might be like when we die or when we have a near-death experience, when we approach death, the filter that we are typically keeping in ourselves through our brain or other bodily structures, the filter starts to become unlocked. And wow. maybe that's what's happening. Is it, is it that, which could be part of the equation, or is that, that, that because consciousness is out there as well, that there are other uh, realms that we don't understand yet that are, you know, making clear pathways, calling us to where we need to go next? I think that's part of it as well. And there's a, another phenomenon known as a deathbed vision, where people around the time of death typically report seeing 
deceased individuals in the room, or they start talking about feeling a sense of unconditional love or peace. And these are the things that are also described in the near-death experience. And in fact, it's also described sometimes by the person who is a healthy bystander by the bedside. It's known as a shared death experience where they start to like absorb these feelings and it's as if they're in the near-death experience too. But so, they're not. They're not going they, anywhere. They're not going anywhere, but they still experience it. And the, sometimes they even co-live the life review at the bedside. So something seems to be happening around this time of death or nearing death where it's like, like kind of like you were alluding to, other dimensions or something are being opened up. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm wrapping my head around that one. That's that's amazing. And it is, is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so let, let's talk about like your favorite interview on on the podcast. Can you? That's yet to be aired. Say, <laughs> I will say I'm going to go with Danny and Brinkley because that one is is top of mind. I interviewed him very recently, and he has had four near death experiences. And I didn't know about the fourth one until he told me about it a few weeks ago because it happened very recently. And the most interesting part of his near-death experiences to me and why I so badly wanted to interview him is that he has had very vivid life reviews each time. So he's had four near-death experiences, one when he was electrocuted, two during open-heart surgery, uh, and one during brain surgery or something like that. And each time he had a life review where he experienced relived events in his life. And he observed how he treated people, and he experienced those events also through the eyes of the people he affected. He was a Marine in Vietnam, so he killed a number of people. And he relived the deaths of the people that he killed during the life review from the perspective of the people that he killed. Wow. And not only that, but he felt the pain of the people's families of those he killed. Hmm. And I think this goes back to illustrating what we mean by this entanglement in this connected, but not connected. You know, that we are not separate from each other. Um, life separates us from one another. And when we're able to bring ourselves to that clear, neutral space, we seem to become receptors for this phenomena. Exactly. I, I think that the, the life review is one of the best demonstrations of, of the interconnectivity of our minds. The fact that someone could be in this state of consciousness where their brain's basically off and yet they're switching lenses from being Danian Brinkley to being the people that he affected in his life yeah. to being the third parties that, that knew those people. It's like we are, it's one, Erwin Schrodinger, the famous physicist, he said, in truth, there is only one mind. And that's really what all of this is pointing towards. And it seems like when people get into these states, whether it's a near-death experience or even a, a, just a normal person who's not in that state, having an awareness of these ideas, I found that things start to open up once we kind of tune into this reality. And some people would call that a spiritual awakening. Yes, I've heard that term used many times. The near-death experience is one example where it can happen. I hear about it with psychedelics, and that's a, a, an area of research that I talk about in my book with meditation. Sometimes just learning of information can create it. So there are many paths, it seems, to having this awakening of the nature of reality. Which makes it very enticing for us human beings to learn ways to access this state of being that is quite blissful and non-attached. Yes. And I think meditation is one practice that anyone can do to try to get there. For me, the, a form of contemplation 
is also helpful, where it's, it's not necessarily in a seated meditative state, but just going about the day and kind of thinking about these topics and not identifying as much with the body, because at least to me, that's not what the science suggests. Rather, the science suggests that m- my identity, our identity is tied to our consciousness and that the body is a, a lens or a vehicle through which we're having an experience as consciousness. So throughout the day, sometimes I'll just kind of remember that reality because it's so easy to get thrown back into the body to say, wait a second, the identity here is the consciousness that's experiencing Mark. And I think that practice throughout the day, again, it's not a seated meditation, but it can kind of bring you back to that state. Well, it's mindfulness in action. Exactly. The book we've been talking about is An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. My guest has been Mark Gober. He is the author. He's also got a podcast that you need to look out for, yet to be named, but he has the coolest guests. And if you like what you heard here, you'll like what you hear there because we're connected. To learn more about Mark's work, please visit markgober.com on Twitter at markgoberauthor. And on Facebook, that page is markgoberauthor author. Mark, thanks a million for hanging out with me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Mike Dow and Mark Gober, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.